0: I'm sure you're exhausted by this promotional rounds that you're doing.
1: You know, it has been more tiring than I normally remember it being, but it's because there's a lot going on and because when I go off to Holland on Sunday, then I have a four-week trip around the States and mm-hmm. Canada. And they're always on the uh, emails, sort of sorting out, well, who do I think should interview me in San Diego? You know, I just sort of, I wish they'd choose it themselves.
0: Yes, you don't have to. It's been a big year for you, John, I mean, with the O2 concert and the publication of the book. I was wondering why it's taken you so long to write this book, though.
1: Well, I'll tell you, but it's a slightly, um, it's a rather long story, but it's quite an interesting one. The first time I thought of doing it was because I had had lunch with Michael Caine in uh, Barbados at Christmas one year because my friend Michael Winner was there. Who introduced us and and Michael had been Michael Caine had been writing his autobiography and saying what an interesting experience it was because he said you recapture all all the bits of your life that you'd actually forgotten about and I thought what a wonderful experience and I was really rather turned on by that because I'm aware that in the rush that is so much of life these days there must be so much of it that I've forgotten holidays, that I've totally forgotten that I've been on, experiences and so on. So when I got back to California, it was arranged for me to to meet a big um, literary agent in New York, a guy who was so successful that he has his own private plane. And I said, well, I want to do this and enjoy it. I want it to be a labor of love, not just something I'm rushing off in order to make the money. What do you think I could get as an advance? and he named a figure that was so low it actually shocked me and um, I said to him are you, are you sure that's right and he said well I'll check it with my people in London and he called me back and said no that's right and I said but there was a there's a disc jockey in England called John Peel who's not known at all internationally much as he's loved in england um and he's been offered more than that can that be right and he said well yes because my london people say that he's very much loved as a figure which sort of <laughs> left the impression that i clearly wasn't and also um that uh, that people had read so much about me in other interviews they weren't interested in learning anymore So I went away, frankly, with my tail between my legs, thinking, well, I can't do that until I retire then. And then my new London agent, about three years ago, asked me, and I told him this story. And he said, well, it doesn't sound right to me. And he rang up Random House, where he, he, he knows the top people. And he came back to me and said, gave me a quite different figure, something like, I'm not exaggerating, it's under eight times as much as The New Yorker had estimated. And I suddenly thought, how lovely, because I can't think of anything nicer to do at this stage than to try and recall my life and make some sort of sense out of it. And I've got some funny stories to tell and a few musings about comedy. So a few months later, when I cleared my diary, I just sat down, and I've been doing this primarily for the last two years.
0: I must say, you you seem to have astonishing recall, you know, for some of the details. Did you keep diaries in those days? No, but uh, it's surprising how much comes
1: back when you start stimulating your memory. You know, you get one memory, and then another one follows, and then another one, and you begin to fill in a lot of the picture. Of course, sometimes you're just rationalizing you're thinking well this must have been the case or that must have happened after that but most of the things that are most of the stories that i tell are very clear in my mind probably because the funnier ones i've told before you know um but it it was not it was not hard but sometimes i had to say well wait a moment when i went back to teach at, at st peter's was the reverend dolman still there or had he left and it took me about three or four days to sort that out with some help from a friend of mine who's helping with a book called jim curtis and he said no no while you were at clifton he left st peter's and went off and was given a parish in the midlands and then everything fell into place because i remember talking to st peter's and i remembered it was on a visit so Ever so slowly, you know, you shine a little bit of light into the corner of your life that's rather shadowy and forgotten and and gradually the outlines become a bit clearer.
0: I must say the character I like most in the book is that of your father. He, He had a strong influence on you, didn't he?
1: yes he had a very strong influence on me um he and bartlett were the two who influenced me both uh most and um and uh, he was such a decent man a patently decent man i can't ever remember it's extraordinary but i can't ever remember his raising his voice he was very kind i think if he had been able to raise his voice it might have been helpful for him because I think he was always trying to keep my mother on an even keel, Mm. and a a lot of things could set her off. And um, I think he spent a lot of his life placating her and making sure that she was okay so that the atmosphere in the house was reasonably pleasant. And I think maybe he would have had a better time if he'd been more forceful. That was not his his nature. He was a gentle man in that nice sense of the word.
0: I wonder if he didn't have... I felt as if he might have some secret kind of life because of those years he spent in India before he came back and got married. Terribly glamorous um, years he had there.
1: Yes, they lived like princes. You know, when he shared with uh, P.G. Woodhouse, his brother, they had 14 servants. And when they tried to reduce the staff, it was rather funny. The Indians came to them and said, no, 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 you mustn't reduce the staff. It is your duty to, to employ 14 people. <laughs> so they said, okay. Um, and he loved it there and i'm sure i think he had quite a larky time i think he was not a he was not a wuss i think he went out with his friends and they played practical jokes and all this kind of thing but it was very odd that when he came back which was almost entirely because of his malaria he had lost an enormous amount of weight and it was becoming dangerous so he came back and then As I said, he settled down in Western Supermare and lived there or thereabouts the rest of his life. As as you're saying, it's an extraordinary contrast from one life to another. But I can't throw any light on it just to say that he did have a very good time in India and he had an exotic time in um, China. I remember him telling me about going to gambling dens in in, in Hong Kong but then he came back and fell in love with mom and spent the rest of the li- his life really kind of making sure she was emotionally okay
0: and she wasn't really emotionally okay was she I mean I know you had an uneasy relationship with her
1: yes there's only so much you can do to help someone who's basically very very anxious and uh, very very depressed which tend to go together Now I'm sure that these days they would have drugs or pills that would have helped. Um, And it's not that there were not moments when she could be very charming, particularly in company, she could be very entertaining. Um, It's just that there was this underlying feeling that one was walking on eggshells.
0: John, I think what sets this book apart from other memoirs is there's a, there's a quality of self-knowledge and understanding that you bring to telling your own story. And I think that's a result um, of years of therapy, which you've always been very open about. I, in fact, still have a book that you wrote with Robin Skinner about families.
1: Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: What sent you yeah. to therapy in the first place?
1: Well, I, there's so many different reasons, but one, one was, as, as I say in the book, you remember I was talking about the television programs that I liked when I was 15, an enormous number of the ones that really fascinated me, or that got me, were, were, were about psychology. I think the most interesting thing in the world is people, and the most interesting thing about people is how their minds work um so it seems to be a natural interest to have and not everyone has but when i meet someone who's who's a geologist and spends or or in i.t and spend all their time on computers or looking at pieces of rock i don't get it i'm very glad that they do but i don't get it and so when I was uh, started going to America, that was very important for me, because um, you know, I learned several things from the Americans in the in the '60s. One was, I think I ate more healthily than I did back in England. There were many more salads than there ever were when I was growing up, and, and odd odd little influences like that, but one of them was certainly that the Americans were more into self help books and much more into the ideas of therapy and therapists than anyone in England. And that was really what got me started. And I began to realize this was a fascinating subject and that it was possible to learn more about yourself, which was, in a sense, very important because we are, I think, largely run by our unconsciouses you know for for many many years particularly in the Victorian era there was a feeling we were homo sapiens we were these very bright people with extraordinary powers of reasoning and nearly all the research that I read in psychology now is about the power of the unconscious I'm just reading a book by Leonard Mlodinoff who's a very brilliant man who co-wrote a book with Stephen Hawkins it's just about the power of the unconscious which by definition we don't really know much about so my feeling is that if we're on the planet with this complex mind. We ought to try and find out a bit better how it works because I had a therapist say to me once, you know, most men understand how their car works better than they understand how their own mind works.
0: Or their own wife. Yeah, (laughs) probably. Um, I must say, it it was a relief, John, to find someone who was actually happy at school. I mean, there's so many misery memoirs around rooted in in ghastly school years. Cyril Connolly, the critic, um, he said Mm -hmm. that, um, I think he was an Eton man, and he said that men spend their adult lives trying to return to what he said was like an Elysian field of those school years. I mean, do you think that's true?
1: No, I don't, because I think the reason that, uh, for example, I write with such uh, affection about St. Peter's, both as a boy and when I went back there as a teacher, was that life was very simple in those days. You know, I didn't have girlfriends. And when you, when you start dating and having romantic relationships, that adds extraordinarily important and fairly unpredictable aspects to your life, which didn't come out when you're just hanging around with men talking about cricket.
0: Did acting in the Spud movies bring back your um, school years for you? No, I
1: don't think so. Um, not my pupil years. But when I stood up in front of the class and started to pretend to teach, um, and my God, what a delight they were to work with those boys. are so talented and so nice. It was great fun working with them. But it, it seemed to be the most natural thing in the world that I would be standing in front of them teaching them. But I'm sure that's because I did that for two years
0: yes, you you did teach, you went off to Cambridge where you studied law and passed, but then you soon started writing comedy, and what struck me is that you you never looked at, you never looked back. and it's not that it wasn't easy, but the work just kept flowing in. It, it just kept coming in, yeah, and
1: you're, I, right. you're absolutely right,, I, and I'm very, very clear about the fact that I was very lucky. And that whenever something bad happened, almost immediately something good happened to compensate it, like for example, um, let me think in New York when I got fired from Newsweek magazine, or I wrote a letter of resignation to spare the very nice editor the embarrassment of firing me, um, that was friday and and by Sunday, I had a job fixed for Monday. you know now that's luck
0: sure but i I imagine that. Things are very different for young comics these days.
1: Oh, I think so, yes. I think uh, I don't think they were ever easy. Of um, course, in my day, stand-up was nothing like the scale that it is now. And I suppose if you're a young comic now, it's easier to get onto stage in a stand-up club than it ever was in my day uh the clubs in those days were basically um, northern clubs or what they used to call working men's clubs and god they were hard work when i worked with dear les dawson who i was very fond of he said to me john he said if the bottom ever fell out of television i'd never go back to the clubs and i that stuck in my mind but um, i think it's very hard always in my business to get a start but the problem with actors is they have to find other actors and sets and all that stuff, at least stand-ups can just go out in front of a mic. So I think there are some advantages now that did not exist in the past. But I think one of the great sadnesses is that so much written comedy is not so good now, partly because I think that they, um, they're always trying to make shows cheaper and cheaper, and writers are relatively expensive, relatively
0: I was amused by um, by your story of, of the first Monty Python series and how you really hadn't worked out what it was going to be about, but you sat with the BBC guy and he just said, all right, just give me 13 episodes. I mean, I, I imagine it's all committees at the BBC these days.
1: But that's what I hear from the young comedians. I don't have any experience myself, but the young comedians indicate to me that there's a new breed of executive that's never actually... Uh, performed or written or directed because in the old days a lot of the very best directors had started as floor managers or assistant floor managers and worked their way up so after working on the floor with Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett for five years they picked up quite a lot about comedy but now you have a group of people who don't do anything except commission programs and I don't understand why they think they have an understanding of comedy when they've no experience of it.
0: Mm. Well, the, the 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 book is also it's a handbook really for aspiring comedians and comic writers, and it's also about you know the the formation um, of your particular sense of humour. It's full of advice, isn't it?
1: Oh, I think it is. Yes, I think it's a, all explanation of how I tried to make things work, and I give them hints. Like I say, when you start, steal steal other people's ideas and rewrite them yourself it's just too difficult to do it all from scratch and then as you begin to find a style and know what you do then write about things that you know about don't try and write about things you don't know about never so slowly your um, boundaries will recede and you'll be able to write about more and more different things. But um, one thing I don't think is in the book is that I think the greatest uh, challenge of all and the most interesting thing is being able to come up with a good story. And, of course, you don't need that for a stand-up and you don't really need it for a half hour. But when you're trying to write a movie or a play, then the understanding of story is absolutely central Michelle and I I always recommend a book that's actually called story and it's by a fellow called um, Robert McKee and if anybody's interested in movies read that book first before you read anything else it's just called story
0: I've seen him um, yes I've seen him in action he's astonishing
1: yeah He's, uh, he's Absolutely, and he was the first person to teach this. You could learn about cinematography or sound recording or editing, but nobody at one point 30 years ago was, was talking about how to write a good story. And of course, that's far more important.
0: How did you feel about writing, um, writing this book, um, writing to lengths, um, as they say, as opposed to scripts?
1: Well, I found it very interesting. I mean, first of all, I hadn't really written for the printed page before. And I thought, well, will I be able to manage the narrative as opposed to the dialogue? And um, my editor was very helpful to me on several things. First of all, he said, don't worry too much about the chronology. And then he said to me, which encouraged me, he said, you can write narratives, but what's unusual about you is that your dialogue's good. And I thought, well, that's what I've been writing all my life, but I was so relieved to know I could do narrative, because he actually said most writers can do narrative and can't do dialogue. So uh, I just thoroughly enjoyed the whole process, and uh, sitting there trying to remember what happened, and then trying to tell it again in a reasonably humorous and entertaining way I just enjoyed the process I made myself laugh I remembered things I'd forgotten I made sense of bits of my life that seemed very confused I couldn't remember what had happened in what order and ever so slowly I sorted it out and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I thought to myself well I'd like to do this and not get up on stage every night and say what I said the previous night and fortunately I won't need to do that anymore because the alimony's paid off
0: <laughs> that was going to be my last question of the day and you've just answered it but what you oh. what you do bring to the book is that is that sense of comic timing you know of oh, well, of
1: good. Well, people said to me which is a lovely thing they said it's like having dinner with you <laughs> And I thought, how lovely, because it's very conversational because I've always uh, written dialogue, Michelle. You see, uh, whenever I write a line, I'm reading it out loud so that I can hear whether it sounds right. So it's a very conversational
0: style. You say that writing has always been your first love as opposed to performing.
1: Yeah, that's right. But you see, it's not an intellectual choice. I didn't decide intellectually. It's like you like uh, strawberries better than you like raspberries, or vice versa. You see, not, that's not an intellectual decision. It's just what appeals to you. So to me, the writing has always felt more valuable, more worthwhile than acting. And of course, many other people, is completely the opposite,
0: and that's fine. How was the um, your Monty Python reunion at the O2? Um, it was quite recent, how was that?
1: It was a surprisingly happy event because all the best sides of Python came out, which is that we enjoy each other's company and we make each other laugh. And what was great was that we handed over the shaping of the show to Eric Idle. I think if four or five of us had tried to do it, it would have taken a long time to agree because we're very different people. We have different tastes even in comedy. And um, there was always quite a lot of um, artistic conflict about what we were doing on the shows. But the interesting thing, Michelle, is that the, the the conflict was never about who was going to play what part or any of that stuff. It was always about the material because we, we, we just... Um, We just uh, cared too much. So when Eric said he'd take the thing over, he did a fabulous job by bringing in the songs and um, the dancing, which he knew far more about than we did because of all his successes with Holy Grail. And that meant by the time we arrived back to start rehearsing, the whole thing was in very good shape. We knew exactly what was supposed to happen. So I, I've got to say an awful lot of the fact it was such a painless, uh, almost easy process was that Eric provided such a great framework.
0: I'm sure you must have missed Graham Chapman a lot.
1: Yes, I did, but he was a strange man, you know. As you gather from some of the stories in the book, there were to parts of him that were absolutely delightful, but there were other parts that were very difficult. I think he was in some strange way almost unknowable. And I think, I probably knew him better than most people, so I think when I say I think he was unknowable, I think it's a reasonably informed opinion. He could be delightful, funny, creative, and so forth, and other times, I could never quite understand, for example, um, what started the alcoholism, but on the whole, people who are very happy don't become alcoholics, I think it's fair to say. And certainly there wasn't alcoholism in in his family. So whether it was that he was not deep down comfortable with being gay, I mean, he always said I was shocked when he came. No, I wasn't shocked. I was surprised because you know he'd been a, a mountaineering, rugby playing, um, medical student who smoked a pipe and um, wore brogue shoes and a hairy sports jacket. You know, they weren't necessarily signs that someone was gay. So when he came out and said that he was gay, I, I, I was very surprised and so was Marty Feldman <laughs> he thought I was trying to make some kind of joke as, as it says in the book so he was very complex and I'm I'm genuinely fond of him but there were other times when I just looked at him and I thought I don't know dear Graham what is going on in your mind
0: are you even nostalgic for those years and, I, and I'm thinking of there was a, there seemed to have been an innocence um an innocence about them Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I think that's not. A, yeah, I think that's rather perceptive.
1: <laughs> I think that's right, and I think it was partly because he seemed to be quite disconnected from reality quite a lot of the time even intellectually and he was very bright I remember he used to get very cross about the Buddhists because he thought how selfish they were to spend all that time contemplating and I think the idea that you contemplate in order to get yourself into a better state of mind when you can then begin to help other people that he really just couldn't take that on board and he said to me once and this may be part of his being gay he thought that touching someone on their genitals was no different from touching them on their arm now that is a very strange change position to hold you see what i mean so when he said things like that i looked at him and i felt great you really mean that and i think he did
0: i think um what i'm also asking john is are you are you nostalgic for those early early years of python
1: oh i see what you mean no because nostalgia i think means you want to be back there again doesn't it mm-hmm And I think, no, I think you can think they were good times and I thoroughly enjoyed them, but I wouldn't want to go back and do them again. I'm someone who likes to move on a little bit in different ways, and I think the next stage of my life, and I'm 75 in two or three weeks, is to do much more writing, and I look forward to that transition.
0: Well, um, you've already answered the question about the alimony. Um, Mm -hmm. So last question, John, is any regrets looking back?
1: Yes, I think I have a couple of regrets. I think it was a mistake to have done Fierce Creatures with the same cast because it created an expectation of what I was trying to do, which was quite different from what I really was trying to do. And uh, as a result, the film got criticized for not being something rather than for what it was. And actually, I think it's an okay comedy. I don't think it's a great one, but it's certainly as good as most of the comedies out there. But it got a terrible battering from the press. And I think, and I mean this, not out of any sense of meanness or something, but I think it was a mistake to have got married the third time because... Um, it was not a love match. I thought I was being sensible and it seemed to matter a lot to Alice Fay. And the result of that was, was I kind of lost ten years of my life because the year after we were married, the, our expenditure went up by a factor of four, four times as much. And uh, being with Alice was expensive and not being with Alice has proved... Even more expensive. expensive. So I've had to do a lot of things primarily to earn money instead of doing things that I wanted to do. But I was so happy to be able to write this book, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm you know, sitting here with a smile thinking how nice it will be to do more writing.
0: Well, I think how nice it will be if you will carry on the story, please, into the Monty Python and and Fawlty Towers years. Any chance of that? Oh, yes.
1: That's always been my intention, and I'm surprised people ask because... The book only, only goes up to the beginning of Python. I'm 30 years of age. And I've got lots of other stuff to talk about. Like, you know, I used to be quite involved in British politics. And then there's all the stuff about the therapy. Then there's all the stuff about, obviously, Python and, and 40 Towers. There's very little in this book about 40 Towers. And then there's Fish Called Wanda all that stuff. And then as I get old and crusty and curmudgeonly, I think I will write a book about the extraordinary world that we now live in and why I'm not so sure that it's making too many people happy.
0: Well, I think you'd better get um, get writing fast, Mr. Cleese. <laughs> okay. I've really enjoyed... Oh, 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 the interviews. <laughs> I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Thank you so much and all the best for it the rest fun. of your tour.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's been a proper conversation. Thank you, Michelle. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye.